Welcome to Can Knock the Shuffle. I am Sean Kantrowitz. I'm a music producer. I'm a TV producer, the host of a hip hop game show called The Questions, and I'm kind of obsessed with how songs get made. As a fan, I've always noticed that artists typically only get asked about the same handful of songs throughout their entire career. It's always made me wonder, what about the stories behind those lesser known songs, the ones that journalists tend to overlook? And in my experience, those unheard stories are the ones that the artists really want to talk about anyway. So that's why Can't Knock the Shuffle exists. I take an artist's entire catalog, I put it in a playlist, throw it on shuffle, and then we talk about whichever songs are randomly selected. We take the interview angle out of the equation and leave it up to the algorithm to dictate which stories get told. This episode's guest is musician and producer RJD2. For nearly two decades, RJ has put his own unique spin on the genre of instrumental hip-hop, beginning with his own albums released on LP's Definitive Jux record label in the early 2000s. Here's the thing about RJ's songs. They never feel like they need vocals, as his composition and the way that he makes his samples and live instruments have always made for a captivating listen. But he's also a great collaborator, doing full albums under the Soul Position moniker with rapper Blueprint, as well as projects with singer Aaron Livingston and West Coast underground legend AC Alone. Along the way, RJ has produced songs for commercials, television shows, and an instrumental of a song that was later used as the theme to AMC's smash hit show Mad Men. But we'll talk about that later. RJ's most recent project is The Fun Ones, released on his own label, RJ's Electrical Connections. A lot of RJD2 albums follow specific concepts or guidelines, but this new one was dictated by just one rule. He only picked the songs that were the funnest to listen to. And if you love music production, stories from inside the business, or RJ's music, this episode is going to be a fun listen to. So let's get into it. How are you, RJD2? What's going on? Man, I'm good. I'm hanging in there. You know, I'm, I'm as good as it gets for, for 2020. How about you, my friend? I'm fine. It's a strange, uh, nervous sort of habit that I have of asking that. And immediately after I ask, I'm saying, what are you doing? Like, this that phrase a- is obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> People are st- we're still staying this shit, but it's, we, we know, you it's, know. It's not a good question. The answer, the answer won't be great by default. And, the, and when it's reciprocated towards me, I have nothing really great to offer. So it's, I got to get it out of my system, but old habits die hard. It, it, they do. You know, it's like, I think about it like with, with hugs, it's like you hug your friends and it's like, now I, I've, I've got a physical for that. Like I, I, I do the air mime high five, which simultaneously says like, Hey, I would hug you. And it also simultaneously says, don't even fucking think about hugging me right now, bro. Right. <laughs> you know I mean? It's a back the fuck up for sure. But a warm one with a smile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. So we need yeah. that for, we need, we need, we need a, 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 you know, a stand-in for how are you? Yes, we'll get there. We'll get there, man. We're getting there slowly. I think. Well, I think we'll probably figure it out by the end of this podcast. To be honest, I think. I think we're going to stumble go, upon man. it. I'm going to project it, manifest. I'm going to let it live in my back, in the back of my mind. All right, good. <laughs> We've got uh, the RJD2 catalog. It has been randomized, mixed up, and we are going to pull from some of the selections from the discog. You have a pretty healthy uh, catalog at this point. What is it? Like 20 years in the game now, almost, right? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, my first single was uh, the Fondulum Rocket Science single. I think that was 98 or 99, somewhere around thereabouts. Uh, yeah, first record full length came out in 2002. So yeah, somewhere, depending on how you, how you want to count the stats, 
somewhere between 18 and 21, 22 years, something like that. Crazy. Well, let's get into it. Psalm 1. Just as conclusive evidence that this is not just a nostalgia program, the first song is Indoor S'mores from the fun ones. I'll play it quick. S'mores and the record that it comes from, you basically made a funk record in 2020. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came out of the other side of it and I was like, this is, yeah, this is just a funk record. That wasn't the the design at its inception. You didn't have sort of an idea? No, no. And this is what's funny about it is that it's like, I don't, and I actually, I'm just kind of now making the connection as you asked this, you know, as we're talking about it. But like for years and years and years, I was like taking you know, kind of stripping things down and then putting them back together and then building them up to a thing. And so in my head, each song was basically assembled in in the roughly the same fashion that I would if I was working on an MPC, which was, you know, you assemble your, your, intro, your intro or your A section or your main groove, drums and, you know, there, if there's going to be vocals there, cool. If not, something's going to need to carry the weight of the song. And in, in, in this case it was you know kind of like that horn lick was the thing that starts the tune so in my head i'm assembling these things kind of like building blocks just like you would a beat but they're all being assembled from live at least in this song mo- almost all of it uh live instrumentation but then you know my my whole mo from the beginning was kind of like take the mpc to this you know utmost extreme try to mimic at least in terms of arrangement what a band would do. So have your intros, have your your A sections, have your your, your chorus, make it a different, you know, groove or, or chord change if you can. Have, you know, have turnarounds, have have bridges, have uh, you know, passing chords, all these things that like bands would do. I was trying to mimic with an MPC for for years and years and years. It's funny that the culmination of doing that in your head when you present it with live instrumentation is literally you're just recording a funk music for me. <laughs> comes down to so yeah when you are a producer of your ilk a lot of those earlier things stem from pulling a record and finding the sweet spot the sample the thing that catches your ear so when you're not doing that when on a song like this that ostensibly does not have a sample what are you composing this on like how how are you sort of approaching that or are you are you listening to to songs that you might sample, but instead just like get inspired by them? Well, that's a big thing that'll happen for me. I'll definitely listen to songs, you know, and it's funny because I'll dig now, but it's like, I'm not necessarily looking for actual source material, but I am looking for things that would catch my ear, you know, in a similar fashion, you know, and what the beauty of it is that it's like, if you hear an interesting voicing of a chord or you hear a drummer doing something interesting, you can just kind of extract the idea without actually literally having to sample the record, you know? So it's a pretty beautiful thing for, for me. I can get a whole lot more out of a record, you know, when it comes to, if you want to call that digging. So w- making this song, 
you know, the idea for the drum groove is very ghost note heavy, um, was sort of like a, like an outro of funky drummer type of thing was like living in my head as, as, and, and then tr really trying to re rely on that for the heart of the, the drum part, you know, and then I kind of have this like vague idea in my head of like the thing having like stabs that are like landing, landing, you know, either on the ones or, or like playing against the ones, um, but not like long sustained chords. And then at that point I was like, it's, it's just a, it's a cool groove. It has a cool feel to it, but it needs something on the top end. If it's not going to be a vocalist, you know, I'll look at like a synth line or something to carry the melody. So the horns became the thing in a way, this was <laughs> definitely one of the more labor intensive songs I've done because it was, uh, it's not on a grid. So like if you were to stick this in pro tools, it's going to float all over the place in terms of tempo. So sometimes what I'll, what I'll do is I'll like, I'll just play like with this was literally just recorded from drum take started there. And then I would kind of like throw out ideas as I'm playing for, for B sections or, or whatever. Um, and like in this, in this song, the outro is, is does this kind of rim shoddy type of thing um, that I'm just sort of freestyling the rhythms on. I did that first and then I just looked at it and I kind of like arranged it so it would, you know, loosely make sense. It's pretty simple, you know, probably, I don't even know, whatever, 16 bar verses and eight bar choruses, something like that, whatever. And then I just built the thing up, but I intentionally did it off the grid just to kind of see if I could do it. The hard part is the horn part is a sample. It's not live. It's, it's a, it's a, a sample pack that Converse put out. So don't, 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 you know, don't get, get on my ass about that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's clear. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a royalty free sample pack that Converse put out from that rubber tracks studio thing they did a while back, but because it's not on a grid, you can't just stick it in and loop it in Pro Tools or MPC. So I literally had to play the phrasing of the horn part on the MPC for three and a half, well, two and a half minutes. Oh, wow. It certainly lends itself and it works as having that loose as older records were not on a grid because they weren't recorded on computers. But in an age of working on songs and computers, that sounds like an editing nightmare. You would think it would be, and, and it's hard, but it's also one of these things where it's like, once you start down the pathway of doing it, it gets easier. And, and I'm happy that I did it because I do feel like this is a song that, um, at least to my ears, you know, it comes through in the end result. You know, for a guy that's used to just making sequenced music, I don't know, doing something that really feels like a live performance is there is something about it that feels like a culmination of something. Totally. And uh, one other thing that I want to ask, you know, when I make music, this I think anybody who makes music sort of encounters this challenge. It might be the toughest part, naming a song that has no <laughs> lyrics. So how, did, how do we come to indoor <laughs> s'mores? If you were little, to look at the song titles on this album, not every single one, but almost all of them. I, I had a goal with the naming because I, like you said, you, when you're making instrumental music, you have the luxury of you can call a song whatever the fuck you want. And I, and I love that. So I, I consciously made the song titles sort of like a love letter to Columbus, Ohio. And that to me is sometimes like a, a specific, you know, physical space. And sometimes it's a specific experience or in this case, indoor s'mores was like, to me, I was, when I, when I, when the, I don't know, it's stupid. I don't think it's, it's probably not a good song title objectively, but to me, it was cool because it was like, 
Okay, s'mores. They're in, you're making them indoors. Okay, you, well, you're obviously making them on the on on a stovetop. Okay, so you know, I mean, then like the visuals, like somebody with graham crackers and chocolate, and and you're burning marshmallows in your in your kitchen. So, and that was like a thing that you know we did as as a kid. I remember making. Still to this day, it's like I, I have no problem making s'mores in, indoors. You know? I'm glad we cleared that up because I think a lot of people would have been looking for a record store called Indoor S'mores in uh, Columbus, <laughs> Ohio. Oh, <or. laughs> uh, no. Outside of this song, when it comes to other naming conventions, do you have any rhyme or reason? Or is it, you know, sometimes when I've worked on things, it's whatever happened to me that day, or if I ate something earlier in that day, or just trying to find something to link it to a moment. What sort of naming convention uh, or conventions have you used throughout your career when it comes to naming instrumental songs? I think it's the same as you. It's, it, you know, you, you try to just capture you know, a, a, a moment or an idea that means something to you. With this, it felt like the song was kind of this fun, lighthearted thing. It didn't feel like it was heavy or somber or anything like to me. So that why this, the song title seemed to fit with the mood. So I'll try to match those things up. You know, like I think of the song, so, Someone's Second Kiss is like a, that was a song title that to me was like, I spent a lot of time like trying to capture what to me what the feeling of the song was. And that, you know, and the title is supposed to be kind of like a, not like a death of a thing, but you know, it's just kind of like you realize like, okay, this like love and heartbreak and love and heartbreak. Okay. This is a cycle that you're going to probably experience throughout, you know, some period of your life that it's not just going to happen once, you know, that type of thing. So. Right in the feels. All right. Well, then we're going to get on <laughs> to, to the second uh, song that we have here. Song two. You know, the whole conceit of this show is we throw it up to the algorithm. The algorithm decides. And that often it often leads us to songs that are not talked about. I feel like you've probably talked about this one before, but I think that we can still squeeze some juice out of it. So here it is. A Beautiful Mind off the Magnificent City album. many people that is like your biggest song they might not even be familiar with your work but they're familiar with a very popular television show that was uh sort of associated with it and it was used as the theme do you do you love this song do you hate this song like I, a lot of times when people have a song that is like the popular kid in the classroom they their feelings <laughs> can change about it so <laughs> oh yeah for sure i don't know if this is going to make any sense but if there is one song that I've released that doesn't feel like mine, it's probably this. It's just played such an unexpected and weird role in my life. This was a license of a song that I made with AC Alone uh, from a record called Magnificent City. At that time, I was, you know, we were making a rap record together. This song always felt to me like the biggest outlier on that record in a way, as far as like a beat that you would try to pitch to a rapper, it felt the least like, Hey, you can rap on this, you know? And the beauty of making that record with AC alone was that he told me going in, 
don't take anything off the table, throw it all, throw whatever you want. You know, you're not going to get too weird for me. And I was like, okay, great. Perfect. And it was half of the reason why I was like really excited to dig into the record. So, you know, and then we made the instrumental version of the release, the instrumentals of the Magnificent City record. And then when they asked to, to license it, you know, there's a lot of back and forth on it. And, you know, I didn't really want to do it. And those guys did. And then we ended up, you know, I, I, I acquiesced. And, and Why didn't you want to do it? Well, I don't control any of the publishing on it anymore. They, they insisted on buying the publishing, 100% of the publishing when they licensed it. They obviously knew that they were, they had, I think they had a, 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 an inkling that they had a hit on their hands. And, and that wasn't really my bag. That's not something that in like artist 101, you know, like they, they would advise you not to do that. Basically. Precisely, exactly, totally. And that, and, and that was why I, I had never done it. I never before or since I've never done it. And that's why for, for months there, I was like, I don't no, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. You know? And I, I remember going back to them saying, I'll license the song for next to free if you want, but you know, giving up all of the publishing on it, that's, that's a lot. But those two, for whatever reason, they felt strongly enough about it. And then I started feeling like I was the holdout. The other side of the argument is like, at least yeah, with most things, not everything, you know, I've never tried crack, but like for the most part, like try everything once is not the worst ethos to live by, you know? So I was like, ah, it's one song. Fuck it. What's going to happen? You know, what, what could happen? You know? So, and that's what, ha obviously what happened is. Becomes a huge, <laughs> huge, huge, huge <laughs> moment. Yeah. Yeah. It is one of these things where people like, I'll roll up to shows and people are like, you're in a, a Ford Fiesta rental, but you did the Mad Men theme. You should be pulling up in a Maserati, you know, with an entourage. And, and like, <laughs> it ain't you because because you have Mad Men money. It's like, I, I don't have Mad Men money. Sorry, I, re, I really don't. So, you know, I don't lament it, but it is. So, you know, that is a thing that misconception sure. is, is, you know, there. And then I've also had this other weird experience where like, you know, I do a little routine with the bits and pieces of that kind of like reconstruct it in, in, some, in shows. And like, I would literally have experiences of people being like, why the fuck are you playing the Mad Men theme, dude? I'm here for RJD2. Because <laughs> it was literally, it was, it, was so, it was far enough removed for people that they, you'd be surprised how many people come to shows and don't know that that was a record that I put out. Right, because it, it, it isn't even on a record that like it's just yours it's, my it's name. really yeah. it's it's <laughs> the AC alone and RJD2 record and if i recall correctly it's like the last song on on the AC alone album or like the next to last song i think it, possible i think it's to definitely towards the end so i understand now a bit more of that it's a disassociation based on the shelf life that it's had and also people coming to your shows and reinforcing the idea that you are not associated with your own song, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't hate it. And it's not, it's not that I dislike it. It's just plays this weird role in, in, in my head. For a song like that, did it start with those strings? If, if you can recall? I think so. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm not a lie. Like I remember making almost any of that record. <laughs> <laughs> but you said you haven't smoked crack, so we know it's not like it's, yeah, it's not crack. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, but uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely not that. It's it's not uh, crack. It's just that, like, I mean, from r around loosely somewhere around two thousand two till maybe two thousand seven or eight, I do feel like my life was just a whirlwind. Most of those years, I toured the continental United States at least once in a 
a vehicle of some kind, I was putting out as much music as I humanly could. I don't, I mean, I, I lived to see the tale, but it's like a lot of shit that I don't remember is probably because I was just like balls to the wall. You know, it took me a long time to realize, like, to get out of that mind state of like, okay, treat every, every opportunity like it's your last one and just assume that it's all going to come crashing down tomorrow. I literally didn't say no to anything until probably 2004 or five. Literally. Song three. Wander off of the Iceberg record, your collaboration with Aaron Livingston, who now records under the name Sun Little. But there's a bright side of all of this. That's what I was told. Her there's a bright side after all. If I could describe the Iceberg record, this word is usually not complimentary, I would say, but I mean it in the most complimentary way. The vibe of the Iceberg record is it's haggard as fuck. It just feels very like if it was a character walking down the street, I feel like he'd be sort of walking with a little bit of a slant. Like he'd be just a little like... Oh, totally. I know exactly what you're saying. In fact, it's funny. I, the only time I'll ever put on a like a full-length record of mine and listen to it front to back is if I'm playing it for my son, just so he can know. And usually he's just like, oh, this shit's, you know, whatever. Turn this shit off, dad. I want to hear the Muppets or something like that. (laughs) But like, so I played this record for him. This is maybe about a year ago or something like that. I had this same experience where I remember being backstage with Aesop once and we were talking about hearing our first records. He was talking about like, yeah, when we play Daylight Live, it's such a, it's such like a, not a letdown emotionally, but it's a letdown sonically. Because the mix on all those early songs, they don't bang. Like the, the kick doesn't slap like his later records. And, and I know exactly what he's talking about. Like you listen to your earlier records, my, anyone, any artist, and it's like sonically, they're not that great. I've said this about Dead Ringer. I had that same experience of listening to the Iceberg record and being like, this is not hi-fi, <laughs> you know? But that, I don't think that's bad. I, don't, I wasn't going for hi-fi. This is one of the few records that I feel like I can listen to now that I've made and still really enjoy. I'm like, that's fucking cool. And I don't say that, I say that very rarely about things that I've done. One of the things that first drew me into Aaron is his voice, you know, and it does have this kind of like ragged quality, you know, almost like, and, and I don't think he sounds like a Otis Redding, but in the same way that like Otis Redding has like a very weathered sound to his voice, you know, and, and my proclivities and when it comes to drums is like the shittier, the prettier, you know, you know, make them drop them down 10 flights of stairs and, and dump a fucking your compost bin on them. This is why I say like in the aggregate, it makes for a fairly ragged sonic texture, I think. And um, yeah, I, I think that's a good thing. This was one of the times where I went into a record with um some kind of like driving forces, I guess you could say. And one of those was that I had this kind of moment where like, I, I, I just started hounding Aaron for a while. There. I was like, man, we gotta, we gotta make some fucking music together. Cause he had this band called the mean, the they were great. They had some really good songs. Um, but whenever I would, you know, I'd see them and I would, I would hear things that he was a part of. I was like, this guy's a phenomenal singer. His command of melody is super great on the composition side of it it's good enough to get his performances and his ideas through, but there's that, you know, kind of like final 20% or whatever to be squeezed out of 
of, of a tune when it comes to like, how are you, are you really going to make sure the voicing of every single chord is the best it can possibly be and, and make sure that every single piece of the composition is really there to, to, you know, support the song. And I had this moment where I was like, well, I can't sing and I can't rap. And, and I'm, and I've internalized that and become a kind of person who makes music that that's kind of baked right into it. So I felt like my first foot forward is at risk of sounding uh, like I'm patting myself on the bat. I feel like if, if there's anything I can do half decent, it's write a decent chord change or come up with a, a groove that's going to be compelling. I, so I, I was looking at it from a skill set point of view. And I was like, this is, there's going to be a perfect symbiosis here for, for our skill sets. The record has such a character of its own, like, like we said. It sounds like it exists in the world of your catalog, but it seems like, I guess I'm just curious to know what you were sort of listening to at the time or what were the things that you were drawing inspiration from for the Icebird record. It was everything from like Prince and Curtis Mayfield to D'Angelo and obviously hip hop. We talk a lot about rap music and stuff, Um, but he had this really wide palette, you know, and there was like ragged undergroundy shit and then like fairly polished pop music. And we liked all of it. So it was it, you know, I remember going into it and feeling like, okay, well, something like Charmed Life, that groove is going to sit okay with him. And then something like Wander that's, you know, a lot more morose is also going to sit equally as well with what he wants to do. Psalm 4. We were in 2011 before. Now we're skipping back a few years to 2007. And it is the song Someday from the Third Hand. say it's sort of interesting to follow the previous entry with this one because in a way it sort of seems like in the from the bird's eye view the third hand had to crawl so that something like icebird <laughs> could could walk if that makes sense oh it makes all the sense let me know if i'm misreading that or i don't know no no no, no, no. <laughs> i'm just no no you you're hitting the nail on the head my friend I, i'm the reason i'm laughing is because the the answer is right along what you're, you're you're driving at, and it's pretty fucking preposterous if you step back and and think about it. Which is, uh, I have now realized that I am not a vocalist that can carry an entire record, and I had to make a record to realize that. But at the same time, it's also you know it's like you gotta you know, you know what do they say you gotta break a couple eggs to make an omelet, right? Right. So to contextualize it, the, the third hand was an uh, album that you put out. Uh, you had left Definitive Jux, where you'd primarily been doing instrumental hip hop music. And the third hand, which you put out on uh, XL, was not at all. I, I mean, there are a couple tracks that, that sort of seem you can see the through There were a few line. instrumental things. Yeah. Yeah. But it's primarily like a singer songwriter record. And yeah. again, yeah, I. I wouldn't bring this up, but you just brought it up. You you said in the last song, <laughs> I I can't sing, and but you put out an album that was all you singing. And I I don't think that 
I think you're being maybe a little critical of yourself in saying that like you can't sing because it's not like the guy uh, William Hung from like American okay, Idol. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, I mean, well, thank that, you. That, that's uh, I guess that's a low bar to set there, but um, <laughs> it's an interesting path for an artist to take to boldly try something that is totally different from what they sort of have built their career on and have a reaction to it that you know wasn't. I don't know. I'll let you. Oh, talk I got about excoriated. It, but... I got. I you say yeah, well, you don't need to mince words, bro. I'll <laughs> I'll say them so then you can say them. Okay, I'll say all the shit <laughs> people said about this record. I got absolutely excoriated in in the press, which is fine. You know, it's fair enough. And yes, I will. I will be the first person to tell you that now. I don't think I'm a terrible singer. I just don't think that I have any business trying to carry an entire record singing front to back. Let's put it that way. I'd like to, on my best days, I'd like to think that I can fall somewhere in the like John Bryan school of like, he might not be the greatest singer to some people, but like he's, he might be the best vessel for the song. So, so don't feel bad. You know what I mean? I don't dislike the record. I mean, just, just to be, so I can get I'm really proud of a lot of that record. I think that the people had more of an issue, not of the quality of the music, but that, hey, you're the guy who does this. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Yeah, like that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not like that's not what we're here for, you know? So oh, totally. I drastically um underestimated what the reaction to that record was gonna be like. Cause to me it was it was always like I remember going into the record being like, and we would talk about it at Excel and I'd be like, Well, yeah, it's you know, it's it's a little bit different, but hopefully people can see it that like, you know, this is the beats are I don't think most of the beats are actually that far outside of what I didn't think they were totally left. You know, I mean, this, this drums are still pretty hard and there's, you know, there's grooves and shit. So to me, the instrumental side of it really wasn't a huge departure. And then, it, and technically, just so you know, what happened is there was like, I went into this record being like, I'm going to make a bunch of demos and then I'm going to find a bunch of singers. I want to make a, I want to make a record that's just features a bunch of singers is what I was trying to do. And so I demoed all the songs up and I wrote all the songs and then there was a point at which it was like I was working so much on the demos that I kind of got to this place where I was like, well, is this is this releasable? I, I couldn't I couldn't really tell, you know. That record was the reason that I left Def Jux. I didn't leave Def Jux and then go make Third Hand. I made this. I made the Third Hand, and I was like, I don't think this makes sense for anybody if we try to put this out together, you know. I, I did understand that it was enough of a departure that it just wasn't going to make any sense being presented on Def Jux. Right. So, and that's why I went looking for a label that I think it, you know, I was out of my contract and it, it just made sense to me to look for a label that was more in that wheelhouse. You know, in, in a way I'm like, I'm super happy I made that record. I'm, I'm very proud of making it. I'm not fucking Curtis Mayfield and, 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 I, and I never fancied that I, I was, but man, people got in their feelings over that shit, bro. <laughs> <laughs> God damn. People were, I, I, I bought, I think one or two CDs back. Like people wrote, and they were like, man, I bought the CD. This is not what I expected. This is not what I'm in the game for, bro. And I was like, I'll, I'll buy it off you. He's like, and, and I think at least one person I remember, he's like, okay, send me my, send me, send me 13 bucks. And I was like, send me the CD. And I was like, okay, here. Customer service, but damn. Yeah, man, I don't want to people, I don't want people to be unhappy with their, with their but you know, in a way it, it the record also serves a, a grander purpose in that I would think it kind of establishes that like, Hey, I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to just follow this template per se. No, so. absolutely. And this is why like, I'm really, 
I can look back on that record and say with confidence that, well, for two things. Number one, you're exactly right that it led up to the Iceberg record perfectly. It, it was like that was me walking, whereas... Because like I said, I went into the third hand literally being like, well, I shouldn't be singing all these songs. I'll find somebody else. But then I just couldn't. I was, I was pitching the songs to people and you know, people were dragging their feet or just not responding and yada, yada. And at, this, at that t- time, I kept working on the demos and honing them. Um, but yeah, by the time I had gotten through that process, I was like just that much more firm in my realization that like I'm confident on the, the instrumentation and composition side. I just need to hand the vocal side off to somebody who's more suited for it. You know, writing lyrics, like again, as a guy who's a producer, what is this song about? Like, what were you, what were you drawing on to write the lyrics from? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's about my lady at the time and um, still, and um, the trajectory from both in a personal and, and business, I guess, what would it be career side of things Man, the last 12, 13, 14 years have flown by. It feels like a lifetime. But you know, I, I can put myself back in the basement of, of the house in Philadelphia that we lived in at the time. And yeah, it was a, man, it's, it's a, it really, I don't, for some reason, it's like, I think when you have a kid, it just, in a way, it's like opening or closing a chapter, every, whatever analogy you want to use. It really, it almost feels like you're starting your life over in a way. So it, in, in ways, it kind of feels like everything before my son was born, our son was born, was like this different life. <laughs> you know, and we've moved a bunch of times and stuff. So, yeah, but I mean, it was, it was basically about her. And, and uh, I can very clearly put myself back in like the, the room and the, and the smells and, the, and everything there, you know, when making that, that song and that record. So far. We're skipping forward to 2010 now. The song is off your album, The Colossus, and it is called The Stranger. Colossus kind of seemed, in a way, like a return to form. And a song like The Stranger, I, I know I just said that you sort of boldly gave the finger to anybody who would be <laughs> like, hey, don't expect me to, to have a sound. But this kind of does sound like, oh, it seems like it has a lot of the signature RJD2 sound. I can hear that. I guess to explain this record, I do kind of need to back up a little bit. So like, Dead Ringer was a sample-based record. And then Since We Last Spoke was maybe about a 70% sample-based record. And so I was kind of slowly inching my way out. And then Third Hand was kind of like part of the mission statement with that record was to see if I could make a record, uh, make an album with no samples. And I did that. And then that leaves you like where you're, you know, I've kind of gone on this technical odyssey. There's nothing else to prove from a technical standpoint, you know? So at that point, it was kind of like, regroup and then do the thing that is to me the most obvious is to just throw out any of these rules and then just start th- focus on the songs and the in the in the music that you're making so the colossus became the first record that i had made that was really 
an amalgamation of all these different recording techniques that I had picked up. So with this, with this, yeah, with the stranger, this was one of the the first time where I'd technically gotten to this place where I was like, okay, I can, I'm gonna have to break things down to just single note hits, you know. So the whole song's made out of samples, but because of my experiences in the past, I was like, I'm really just gonna have to be taking one note stabs for legal reasons. Yeah, yeah, and so that was the first time that I had made a song. It would, wouldn't be the last, but was, and it's an incredibly labor-intensive thing to do because you, you, in a way, Justice, they made that cross record in a similar fashion and in in they used the term micro-samples at the time to describe it. You could call it whatever you want, but it's basically, you're, you're literally just breaking things down to single note hits and then every rhythmic thing you have to design, every harmonic, you know, you got to fit, it's, you've got, it was 70 80 90 sound, so, sounds that you need to get in key and then figure out how they're going to rhythmically fit together so it becomes a technical challenge that's far beyond anything i had ever done before when you say the stab like the little micro samples or whatever are you referring primarily to that horn part that sort of plays through or are you saying that everything it, in everything, there. everything yeah like all the all the background there's no there isn't a loop in the entire song. How much live instrumentation is on that song? None. So it's entire... Okay, I don't think I understood that. And now yeah. you're watching a man's brain sort of <laughs> <laughs> sift apart. So everything on that song is a micro sample. Yes. How often do you pull those out? Like how often you're like, oh, let me I do can, one I of can only again. stomach about one an album because it <laughs> takes so much time. It's really, really time intensive doing that. Uh, High Street Will Never Die. It's on the new record. Same thing. I mean, those songs were like, like what I could get the basic framework for an easier song to make in the course of a couple of days, a day or two. Songs of that ilk take two, three weeks. A lot of it is like just pitch wise, you have to not only take the source material that you're going to find, which oftentimes isn't laid out for you in a very logical, you know, like if you're taking the only exposed part of whatever, a passage that you're going to find, the harmonic content of it, it's not going to be like breadcrumbs, you know? You, so you literally have to like, not just take the sample, but go back to the original source material song and listen to the whole song, transcribe it and figure out what key it's in. Right. And then from there, you can work forwards. Because sometimes, depending on the intervals or chords that will appear, I'm going super nerd here, but we talked about just, just this last week, Mark Ronson was talking about uh, Memory Lane on the Nas record. And the loop that that comes from, it's a weird part of the song where it's like the two, three, four, or five chords are the only things that appear. The one chord never appears. So you can't listen to Memory Lane. If you ever try to figure out what key that song is, is in, you kind of have to know your shit. It's implied. It's it, it never resolves in that way with the with the one chord. Yes, but that one chord isn't in the loop. Right. So if you were to like figure out any of the core four chords that make up the memory lane loop, none of those chords are going to give you an idea of how, what the key it, it's actually in. Same deal applies to every single fucking sample. <laughs> yeah, it gets it's labor intensive, but I mean, then you you end up with a result that's like. It's its own thing. Is the advantage to doing that because of the sonic quality that is just not going to be easily uh, replicated by, say, bringing in horn players and having them play the melody that you want? Or is the rabbit hole that you have to go through in sort of imposing these restrictions, does it compositionally sort of lead you to the gold? In a weird way, I think it's, I think both of them 
are in play. You know, like when you take something apart and you really erase any remnants of the phrasing that it some something really was. And especially if you're doing a thing where you're playing, you know, you've got like one stab from this record and two stabs from that record and three stabs from the other, you know, like you're, 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 you're creating a phrase across multiple sound sources. You're going to make it more your own number one. And two, yeah. Like I, I think of that song as like a thing that if you would, you know, you could put that on paper and have a horn session come in and play it, but it's really not going to sound anything like that. Right. Cause what you get out of that is like the weird, truncation of the notes and then like the all the artifacts that get baked into the actual note i've done it a thousand times i've tried to take those kind of passages and hired horn players to try to recreate them not only does it never work it's always a letdown (laughs) (laughs) that's just my experience a a human will never play it the way that the performance is when somebody is chopping it up and, and using these you know sort of sampling methods yeah they're gonna fundamentally see it as like a a human performance and those usually suck like in in, in the <laughs> like i think humans I don't, usually suck bro human, man, look humans, at 2020, 2020. yeah man we're, we're but anyway it. we're yeah. we're back to we're back at square one <laughs> anyway you had mentioned too that this was the first album that you put out on your own label uh rj's electrical connections you've been running your own label for a while now because what this was uh 20 10, so 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, a label. Yeah. Uh, 2009 was actually the one. Yeah. So 11 years. Do you feel like you ever would have any inkling to go back to a label or now that you've sort of seen the other side, it just doesn't make sense. I don't see any point for releasing a record. I mean, to be totally honest, you know, there's, there's times where I wonder like, should I just, dump the thing in somebody else's hands and just walk off into the sun. <laughs> the label? You know? The label? Yeah, or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would just all, yeah, yeah. You know, master publishing, there's days where sometimes it's like the music industry can be hard on you. It can chew you up and spit you out. And, all, and, days. And, you know, yeah. all days. All days. <laughs> so there are times where you just like, you just want to have a garage sale and then and go walk off and, and you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, proverbial, proverbially speaking. But, um, Th- those are few and far between. Uh, yeah, as far as going back to a label, I see no. At this point in time, I mean, respect to all the labels that are out there, and there are a few that do it right. There are few that step up. They identify what artists just can't do, and they get really good at that. And and uh, I, Rhyme Sayers is a perfect example to me. I don't think that any one of those artists that are on Rhyme Sayers could really pull off what the label pulls off. But those are few and far between. You, you know what I mean? There's also, for, for every one of those, there's labels that are just, they effectively operate on what to me is just an information gap. I would like to think that artists have the gumption to hire a publicist and contact a distributor and yada, 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 all the shit that it takes to release a record. They just don't have the information. Right. Or the, or the, or the, or the gumption to seek that information out. So that's kind of how I see it. Song six. All right, well, we're going to go back to the label days here. It's a, I mean, listen, am I killing these transitions or what? It's smashing them. Smash, smashing. It's not enough fire emojis for the, in, in the world for. I know how you feel, bro. <laughs> uh, we're going to 2004. Since we last spoke, is the album on Definitive Jux, and the song is Ring Finger.
is probably one of my favorite favorite songs of yours. Oh, personally. thank you, thank you. I, I just love it. So tell me everything. <laughs> so this was a true hybrid moment. You know, it, it, since we last spoke, was like the the writing was on the wall. You're just not going to be able to to just keep going to used kids records and Robert's records and coming home with an, with a stack of wax under your arm and make records indefinitely. Endorse more records as well. Yeah. (laughs) It's just not going to happen. So, um, you know, that's when I had taken that route of like incorporating live instrumentation and figuring out other ways for source material. Um, so the guitar part was live. It was kind of like a, a modified take on something. The drums were done in the MPC I discovered like you can take the you can take an unidentifiable sample and use it as to kind of create ambience like like it, like it won't if it's not carrying a melodic idea or a chordal idea but it's still in there it can go a long way to giving a, something a feel so that is in there um like texture yeah exact texture is great yeah exactly my lady is singing on this she hates it she never she never wants to hear this song again <laughs> um but you know i i thought i thought she did a great job on it and yeah and i guess i know in a way when i look back on the song i feel like it's kind of like the perfect transitional component for for between dead ringer and what would later come being your your last record on uh definitive jux i'm sort of always intrigued by the whole story of that label because it sort of had like such a driven rise and then kind of went the way of so many indie labels but it it sort of like wasn't it was like college it almost seems like to me like all of these records were also coming out for me when i was in college learning about all these people who i i hadn't heard before i didn't i didn't grow up on on any of these people's records you know as a kid and sort of like seeing this whole scene or my perception of what a scene was and then college sort of ended and everybody went their different ways. And I sort of wonder what your memories of the label and sort of your experience there is. Similar, you know, I I previously uh, spoke about how that period just felt like a whirlwind. I I don't know if it felt the same for other, uh, you know, the other parties on the label, but I wouldn't be surprised. I remember when, when it was just an idea, it was a thing that Jamie was going to do. Jamie being LP, L- LP. LP. The very first thing that they put out was a was a little EP called Definitive Jux Presents. I think it was a, a Can Ox tune and an LP tune and a Mr. Lift tune. And I had a tune on there. I don't know if there was anybody else on that, but that was kind of like the core roster, if you will. To me, it felt like an experiment, you know, and I would say it probably was. L had a history with independent rap in New York to some degree, but he had also, when they had put out the, you know, the Fun, Fun Crusher Plus EP, that wasn't on like a big indie at the time. But yeah, it just all felt like an experiment and we were kind of like making it up as we go. And I, it's, I, I, I'm treading lightly here because I don't want to imply anybody else's feelings. Sure. You know, about, about it, you know, but when I, when I look back on like uh, LP and Amici, um, who was his manager, who was kind of like the, the sort of day-to-day operations guy, it, it definitely felt like a new situation. You know, it didn't feel like you were coming into an established thing that I never really saw it as like a liability. They would probably, you know, have different 
they might have different feelings about it. And, and I, and I, I totally understand why they would get to a place where like, they just decided I don't want to run a label anymore because you know, when you shit, man, it's, there's a, there's a very, you know, there, there's a, a, a conscious reasons why I have never put out a record on my label that I am not in some fashion, the artist making the record. Um, there's expectations. I mean, and you're investing in somebody else. Oh Yeah. There's this weird that I've learned too through my dealings in the music industry. There's sort of this view from the artistic side, the the David and the David versus Goliath side, where it's like, oh, the label, you know, like the label doesn't care and the label is this. These people are investing thousands of dollars into something that might not work for myriad reasons. And it might just be because that's how the dice rolled. It might be because they misread the music or it might be like you're a temperamental artist and like you, you didn't do whatever you could that made the most sense business wise, you know? Absolutely. I mean, this is why I say like, I came out of that experience seeing how, and I, you know, I, I'm not going to sit, act like I was, you know, uh, uh, above it or, or I, I wasn't part of the problem, so to speak, but like, yeah, I mean, y- you know, you've got a bunch of artists, you know, they perceive themselves on a, on a label you know what I mean? All they've been told is like what they've ingested from listening to rap records, which is a fucking newsflash. Maybe don't take that as a, as a, as a paradigm <laughs> into your, your life for every fucking relationship, you know? Yeah. There's one thing that I've, I've, I do kind of regret when I look back on that period and, and it applies to Def Jux. It also applies to some of the other indie labels. There is like, I realized at a point, at the end of the day, these things are driven by like one or two, maybe max three people who really just love music and they want to put it out. And they're putting themselves in incredibly risky financial positions to do this. And a lot of the artists are just fucking dipshits looking at it like, oh, yeah, what, what am I getting? What, what about me? What am I getting at? You know, and it's, and it's like, yeah, that's the thing that I, I, I do feel uh, I, I got a, I got a lot of respect for the people who ran indie labels back then that I didn't at the time. Song seven. 2016, the song is called Saboteur from Dame Fortune, featuring Fonte Coleman on vocals. That Fonte Coleman guy. He's that guy, man. He is that dude for sure. You know, I've been lucky enough to do a lot of recording with him over the last, you know, 12, 13 years. And I think what, what else has also made it easy is it's like when he made that transition from, you know, being a, a confident and competent singer in addition to a rapper and then being able to play both sides of the fence, it was like, oh, well, I can just send him a track and he'll figure it out. And he works so fucking fast, man. I I think that the there was one one of these tunes he wrote Saboteur, but um The Shining Path was a tune that I wrote and I had the vocals demoed and everything. I think he sent that back to me within 24 hours. Wow. It was crazy, dude. Yeah. So Saboteur, I wanna say that this originally started for I got asked to do a, a remix for something. I wanna say the beat started there. 
and then the remix didn't get used. This is this. Is, I'm going to tell you the most unglamorous story, and I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the real story too. So I had the beat, and then the beat wound up in the hands of Corey Smith's hands, who used to manage De La Soul, uh, who's my favorite rap group of all time. You know, for the longest time, I was like, you know, loved it. Still to this day, would kill to do something with De La. But Corey also managed some other artists. And so it wound up in the hands of Kwali. And Kwali recorded the title track to Prisoner of Conscious to it. That was well before I was making this record. Corey came back to me at some point and said, you know, he re-recorded the song and he, he wanted to use a different beat. So he moved on. And, and that whole thing was kind of just like, I wasn't really even driving the boat. It was just like, it's just getting updates type of thing. You know what I mean? And uh, I was like, okay, 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 okay. And then, so I had the track and then I, you know, uh, ended up pitching. I wanted Fonte to do something for that record. And that was in the batch that I sent him, you know, he wrote to it. And I remember him sending it back being like, this is dark. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I hope this isn't too dark for your record. <laughs> like quasi apologizing for the, the, the content in it. But I was like, nah, man, it, it works great. You know, it, and I, at that point I was only sending him tracks that like, I felt like the sonic texture fit within the album. So it didn't matter what he picked. Sure. So all that's this long winded way of saying that like the backstory to a lot of songs, a lot of people like to think that the back, the narrative to a song is like, Biggie was sitting around like, oh, I've got to have the perfect, you know, I'm going to write this song about the 10 crack commandments. And then we need Premier to come up with this. Oh, and he's going to freak this blues. You know what I mean? And it's like, oftentimes it's, it's not this tidy, you know what I mean? It's much the, 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 the making of the sausage is messy and, and, and such. And, and I think that's fine. You know, it's like, to me that the creative process really kind of should look like that. You should be throwing all types of shit against the wall and trying everything. It should be messy if you're doing it right, in my opinion. It's kind of life, right? Like people, people who people don't normally plot out the entire trajectory of their life. And if they do, it either isn't very interesting or it wildly does not meet that expectation and you get something else. That's a great analogy. I never thought about it like that, but that's a perfect analogy. Like, would you want your life to play out as if it were just written from a narrative? And I don't, I don't think anybody would, hopefully nobody would say yes. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. The point is, so the greatest things that happen in your life are often by accident. You could say the same about the greatest songs uh, in, in anybody's catalog exactly. and in your catalog and, I feel like that's a that, that feels like a fitting place to end it on. I feel like we had some other thing we were going to try to discover, but I don't remember what it was now. <laughs> and on a high note, man, break the knobs off. We're done. All right. You heard the guy. We had to end it on a high note. Thanks again to RJD2 for dropping by and taking a stroll through his incredible catalog of music. You can check out all things RJ, including his latest album, The Fun Ones, by visiting rjd2.net. Is there an artist who you think should appear on Can't Knock the Shuffle? Shoot your requests over to me by sending an email to can'tknocktheshuffle at gmail.com. Or you can hit me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Sean Dammit, S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a comment on our show. I'm Sean Kantrowitz. This has been Can't Knock the Shuffle, and we will see you next time.
Stony Island Audio.